0: to the end of myself. It's a great place to start a new journey, a great place to start the path that God has before us. Now, before we get to walking through that in the Scripture, I wanted to share with you a little bit more about what Jeannie and Megan shared just briefly about the fair that's coming up and what we have in mind for the fair those of you who would be willing to volunteer and work there, it will be a great opportunity to meet a lot of people in the community, connect a lot of dots for people, uh, but it's also an opportunity to share our faith with the community in creative ways. So this year, we've, we, we have this focus on vision, and these are a couple of the banners that will hang in our big tent. Uh, by the way, if you saw a couple of years ago, the tent we had was 20 by 20, now we have a 20 by 40. Uh, it'll, be, it'll be big, it'll hopefully be a lot of fun. And, uh, and by the time you've got the t-shirt and the banners and the eye test and then unlock the donation to help people here and around the world with vision care, uh, hopefully you'll walk away from that tent, you know, thinking about your life vision a little bit. So think, here's, here's how it'll be presented to people as they come and interface with our church. The first thing is, yeah, hey, you can check your eyes and we're going to use the same kind of eye test that they use on the mission field with people regardless of language or reading ability you could even do little kids and it's just the kind of the letter e on a cube and they have to tell which direction it's going and as you turn the cube it gets smaller and smaller and when the person can't see it there's the there's their vision you know kind of projection of oh we've got 20/40 vision or something and so So whoever works at the booth, you'll become an overnight eye doctor, and uh, you will will not even have enough information to help the person know what to do, but you'll be able to hopefully tell them uh, what their their vision number is there. And if they do that, and if they can bring friends and family and anybody they can to come and take the test, thanks to some corporate sponsorship— um, we have the ability to unlock a donation for every test that's taken. And so not only does the person walk away with you know, a little sense of their own vision, uh, but their participation unlocks a donation of $3 that happens in kind of conjunction with what you can see on the screen there. Um, and that will then be sent to both rural Africa and there'll also be some things that'll happen here locally uh, to help the poor. And so we're, we're hoping that you know, 1,000 a, a people, 3,000 people will take this test um, and that will, that will resist. So we'll have a way of indicating that, kind of a whiteboard where we can kind of celebrate how far along we are. And, um, and our hope is that that will help people bring one another uh, up to the tent to be able to participate in this uh, so that then we can give them this, and that is access to a free life vision tool. So they'll just get a little business card that'll, that'll say how to get that. Just simply go to our website and download it. Um, and, and our prayer is that after the fair, when people kind of on their own time that they'd be willing to go and think about, you know, it's not just physical eyesight that matters, but where am I going in my life, and what's my vision for the future? How does God play a part in that? And, uh, and prayerfully, that will lead some people into uh, some of their first steps through a relationship with God. So, I would love for you to participate in two different ways. One is if you can volunteer, do it. It'll be fun. You get a lot of camaraderie at the tent there. It's just kind of a neat opportunity. You get the T-shirt and something that not very many people know. In theory, as long as they show up on time, you'll get to wear white lab coats along with your T-shirt. So you have lots of fun if you want to have the fun with that. And uh, so we're going to really look like we know what we're doing, but we're not going to know what we're doing. And uh, so you get to be a part of that, or if you can't volunteer, come and hang out at the tent, like just come and visit, say hi, um, or bring your friends and family along and unlock some more donations and, you know, connect with people that way. So uh, if there are extra t-shirts next Sunday, some of you who are sort of like regulars at the fair, we want to give you t-shirts just so you can walk around as advertising for us, um, but, uh, but everybody who signs up today gets a t-shirt today to take home with them uh, to be a part of the volunteer team. So that's all coming soon. I just want to pause really briefly before we start the message and just pray that God will bless this endeavor uh, that two weeks from now, people really will be seeing clearly, uh, not so much to physicalize, but that, that as a result of connecting with our church and this tent experience, that people will be able to step into a relationship with God and a vision for their future with him. So let's just pray about that. Lord, we commit all this to you Um, Lord, in in every way, we we know that these are just creative means to try to get people's attention and help them to think about things in a way they maybe have never thought of them before. So I pray that this tent would do that. I pray for each volunteer, especially, Lord, as we're wandering on the fair, having opportunities to converse with such a huge percentage of our community is all right in one place at one time, and we just want to maximize that opportunity um, for sharing the gospel of course, and also for just reaching out in love to people who might need a prayer, a word of encouragement, um, a, a, a path forward in their life. Help us to be sensitive and bold as we uh, want to be your witnesses and share, share light and love with our community here in Berrien. So we look forward to doing that in Jesus' name, amen. Well, today we're continuing on what Pastor Dell started last week, which is the, the series A New Way of Thinking. And I don't know if you've ever had to get ready for a public speaking engagement or maybe you've even taught a, a class or preached a sermon before. It's always interesting how you have these lofty ideas of how it's going to go. And then when you get right up to the last minute, the things that trip you up are sometimes the, the really silly and mundane things. So sometimes it's, you know, the whatever, the screen isn't working or the, you forget your notes or something like that. So today, we were having, a, you know, kind of a, one of those high-pressure mornings at home trying to get everything done, and a lot of you know we have triplet uh, two-and-a-half-year-olds at our house. So for us to get ready to ch- for church, and that's not all we have, there's a bunch of other ones, but th- it's th- that, that, it definitely makes it difficult to get out the door, okay? So, uh, you know, I was, I was running a little behind already, but I was trying to help out as much as I could, and I, I had just put, you know, a church shirt on here, ready to go, and this smiling baby was handed to me, still in jammies which were all covered with little fluffies uh, that were on my shirt as soon as I took them. And then there was, of course, there were other babies crying, Daddy, Daddy. So then I had to pick up the other ones and, you know, help with them, change their diapers and things like that. So by the time I get out the door, I'm looking down going, oh, no, there's like fluffies all over. So for me, like, you know, getting ready to share a message from the Bible with all of you, like what was my preparation? Just <laughs> picking up little fluffies. So hopefully I got them all. We'll, we'll see. Uh, I know the lights kind of you know make whatever is up here is you know worse than reality or something. So so I need a little new way of thinking here this morning. And I would imagine that a lot of us do, that when we when we encounter life, like things don't always go the way we want. And sometimes we get into rhythms, into habits, even into addictions that take us way off track from where we thought we would be, what we want, what we want to be. And so we look up to heaven and we say, Lord, I need a new path here. I need a new way to think and and, and hopefully a way that can change what I'm doing and the results I'm getting in my life. Not just interested in a new way of thinking, but I think practically we want a new way of thinking that leads to a new way of behaving. So if you're anything like I am, you have behaviors in your life that you wish you could just stop, right? Things that you choose to do, like you know it's your fault, but you keep doing it. And, and all of us have a, probably a list of those, maybe. Unless you're, I don't know, maybe, maybe you really are happy with yourself, but most people would kind of like, if in an honest moment, they would say, yeah, there's some things about my life I wish I could overcome or do differently. So if I was asking you, what would be a behavior you wish you could change, what would it be? Just something about yourself that you wish you had sort of the power or the willpower or some sort of miracle to, to just change, to not be that way anymore. I was thinking about kind of a list of what those might be. For a lot of people, you know, just messiness or overeating, lack of sleep, overcommitment, lack of priorities, you go, Dan, Dan, you don't have to read this. I know, I know, I know, I, I know too. This is, a, this, is a, this is a human experience here, right? So we look at this list and we say, yeah, I, I would love for that to be different in my life. And yet, each day, I feel like I go to bed and I'm just sort of intending that someday it'll be different, but not right now. Maybe not even tomorrow or this week, but someday I won't be that way anymore. How can I ever change? How can I ever overcome this? So, Pastor Dell started us on the journey of growth and change last week. He talked about the idea of awareness and perspective that, that when the first step of a spiritual change in your life, and really, um, even a psychologist. The first step in anybody's change is you have to have an awareness of reality. The, like the lights have to come on and you have to see what's actually happening. And, and Pastor Dell opened up to Luke 18 and we looked at that, that Pharisee and the tax collector who both went to the temple to pray on the same day and just contrasted these two people. The Pharisee, who in theory is supposed to be the one that follows God, and he's saying, oh Lord, thank you that I'm not as bad as everybody else which kind of demonstrated zero self-awareness, right? Because Jesus said the Pharisees, their hearts were far from God, but they had no idea they were far from God. Meanwhile, here's this tax collector that comes to the temple. And he, he, he's so filled with humility, with you know, shame. He, he, he doesn't even want to lift up his head. He doesn't even come near. He, he just sort of stands back afar and he beats his chest. He says, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, and then Jesus said, which of these two went home justified before God? Well, it was that tax collector who had, a, uh, he had clear awareness. He wasn't denying anything. He wasn't, he wasn't excusing his behavior. He wasn't blaming anyone. Uh, he, he also had the ability to accept something about himself that wasn't what he wished for. And that's the second piece of this. First, you have to be aware of what's wrong, but... The next piece of being able to grow and change is you have to accept the truth about that in your life and stop making excuses and blaming other people and thinking that, you know, somehow, you know, no, it's not really that story, it's a different story, and you just get honest before God. That kind of honesty is difficult to come by. Because in our lives, we, we like making excuses. And even when we know we have problems, we don't like talking about those problems. The tax collector wasn't hiding or denying or deflecting or blaming or comparing or excusing. He was aware and he chose to accept kind of his current status. Just because he accepted it didn't mean that that's where he wanted to stay. But it was, it was an admission. It was a confession of what was true. Confession just means agreeing. Agreeing. When we say confess your sins to God, we're saying agree with God. It's not just be aware that there's a problem, but you have to accept that the problem exists and that it's your problem, and that if there's any change or growth that's going to happen in your life, it's going to start with that humility and that honesty to accept the truth. Um, so I get to work with Life Action uh, as well as here at the church, and a lot of you who were a part of the Life Action Summit a while back, you remember the first few days of the summit kind of beats you up. Anybody remember that? Say, no, I've blocked out that memory completely. I don't know. No, it's, the reason it beats you up is because the first step in revival and change is finding out where you are with God in the first place. And so you have to kind of look at your life and say, okay, where am I starting from here? I mean, if I'm starting from a position of like everything's great and everything's okay, then I really don't need revival, right? But if I need revival, there's something that needs to be revived. So, so you start with honesty. You start with humility. Uh, once you get past those steps, the rest of it feels easier because now you're just taking action based on what you have agreed upon is the truth. You've already confessed it. And so now it makes sense to start walking forward. So a good way to think about this is, is life in a dark room. You imagine that you wake up one day and you just realize there's a terrible smell in the room. You're like, oh man, something's wrong. So then you stand up and you start walking and you start tripping over all sorts of trash and garbage and things. You can't really see it, but you're like, wow, this, this place is a mess. This is, I don't want to live here. I don't want to live like this. And you finally stumble over to the side of the room and you flip on the light and the light reveals to you that there's trash and rotten food and all. It's just a horrible, horrible mess. Hey, you make a reality show about your life in that room if they wanted to. And you go, man, this is not, I, I don't like this. Okay, that's awareness. Like the light is on and you see the truth. Acceptance... Is when you you take it a level further and you start you start looking around. You go, well, wait a minute. Whose trash is this? Oh. Who who didn't put the food away? Oh, that was me too. Um, Who is supposed to clean this up? Oh, that that could be. So acceptance is when you instead of just recognizing there's a problem, acceptance is agreeing. With, with sort of what's happening, why it's happening, and accepting responsibility for it. Once you do that, change is possible. But if you look at that room and you're like, somebody should clean this up. I did. It. This is not my problem. This is not my mess. Then you'll never be the one that takes action to fix it if you don't accept that the responsibility is yours. Now, the Bible talks about this all over the place, the idea of accepting responsibility and taking steps forward, and we're going to look at one story today about how that will work, and it's going to come from 2 Samuel. Let me share with you this, which I, I probably don't have to share, it, because I'm imagining you know, just as well as I do, that we all fight this. It's easy to identify other people, like Zek over there, he needs to clean up his room, but my room's okay, I mean, it's not that bad, it's not as bad as Zach's. so like, what's wrong with my room? So we do that, right? People don't naturally want to accept fault or weakness or responsibility. We want another explanation. So you think about somebody who would say, no, no, I don't need any help. Even if they're in way over their head, I, I don't need any help. I, I, I've got an addiction. I haven't been able to stop for years. But no, no, I can handle it on my own. I'll get around to it. I don't need any help. Um, or what I did isn't as bad as fill in the blank. Um, as many of you know, I grew up, um, my parents were jail chaplains, and so I kind of grew up being a part of their ministry, and even from, a, from teenagehood forward, sometimes I would get to go into the jails and speak and things like that, and uh, there was a guy that our family worked with that was a high-profile criminal in our community. Um, he, had, he, had, he had multiple violent assaults and rapes on his record. And he was in jail, waiting sentencing. He ended up, you know, sentenced for many, many years. And so, so there he was in kind of counseling in the chaplain's office. And uh, you know what he said to my mom one day? He was shaking his head and saying, like, "I never actually killed anybody." I just think about it. now for us. It's this is kind of an extreme example. We're going like, hello, like, you, that what you did was, well, you know, if if there was just quick justice, we're probably already in death penalty territory for this guy, and yet in his mind, he's kind of like still saying, well, I did, it wasn't as bad as what Joe over there did. In fact, in the jail we are in, there's different pods. I think a lot of jails are set up this way, where the you know, the people that just come in for a couple weeks or whatever, you know, low-level offenses, they're in one group, and then you know, the kind of the medium criminals are another group, and then the, the really horrible people or whatever, they end up in you know, solitary confinement or some sort of special situation. And it was interesting, over and over and over again in the ministry, we would hear people say, and they would call that seg, like segregation, the really, really bad guys, and, they, and you'd hear people, they're in jail. I mean, they're going, to, they're going away for years and they'd say, oh, at least I'm not in seg. <laughs> like, well, true, but that was a you know, life goal. You could raise the bar a little bit higher than that. <laughs> the, uh, the, 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 the mentality that we naturally gravitate to is, oh, I'm just not, it's, it's what, I'm, what I'm dealing with, yeah, it might be real, but it's not that bad. Uh, there was a lady who had been sentenced to eight years for drug trafficking, selling drugs to people. And, uh, and there was a, the reason she got a heavier sentence than normal in our community was because one of the people she sold to died of an overdose. And this lady was angry that she was getting blamed. Like, why should that person's choice to overdose have anything to do with me as the seller? Okay, you could debate the legalities of all that, but she was like, you know, saying I, I, you could put me away for a year or something, but eight years isn't fair. It was interesting what it finally took to change her mind was as she was there in jail, uh, people came in and had to detox from drugs in front of her, like in the same little living community in the pod with her. And she would see people throwing up and shaking and walking away with brain damage and walking, not able to speak. There was one lady that went blind for a few days as she was detoxing in front of this drug dealer. And the drug dealer, after watching this over and over again, finally broke down and said, I, I see it now. Like, I see that I was causing this in people's lives. And so she went away for her sentence saying, I, I think I actually deserve it. I should never do this again. But it took a lot for her to wake up, just to, just to get the awareness up long before there was any kind of acceptance of responsibility. Okay? And a lot of us would say, it's just not my fault. So let's look, at, let's look at kind of the classic Bible story of this exact dynamic. And it's in 1 Samuel Actually, the screen might be wrong. It might be 2 Samuel 11. Yeah, that's right. 2 Samuel 11. And as soon as I start reading the story, you'll probably remember what happens. In the spring of the year when the kings normally go out to war, King David sent Joab and the Israelite army to fight the Ammonites. They destroyed the Ammonite army, laid siege to the city of Rabbah. However, David stayed behind in Jerusalem. Late one afternoon, after his midday rest, David got out of his bed and was walking on the roof of the palace. He looked over the city and he noticed a woman of unusual beauty taking a bath. He sent someone to find out who she was and he was told she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the, and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. David sent messengers to get her, and when she came up to the palace, he slept with her. She had just completed the purification rites after her, having her menstrual period, and she returned home. Later, when Bathsheba was discovered that she was pregnant, she sent David a message saying, I'm pregnant. Then David sent word to Joab, remember Joab's the commander in the army, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab sent him to David. When Uriah arrived, David asked him how Joab and the army were getting along and how the war was progressing, and he told Uriah, go home and relax. David even sent a gift to Uriah after he had left the palace, but Uriah didn't go home. He slept that night at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. When David heard that Uriah had not gone home, he summoned him and asked, what's the matter? Why didn't you go home after being away for so long? You get what David's trying to officiate here? He's trying to cover for what he did because he's thinking, and if I can just get him to go into his wife for one night, then I'm off the hook for this pregnancy. Well, verse 11, Uriah replied, the ark and the armies of Israel and Judah are living in tents. Joab, my master's men, are camping in open fields. How could I go home and wine and dine and sleep with my wife? I swear that I would never do such a thing. So Uriah's sense of honor, I mean, he's really high, well, stay here today, David told him. Tomorrow you may return to the army. So Uriah stayed in Jerusalem the next day, that day and the next, and David invited him to dinner and got him drunk. But even then, he couldn't get Uriah to go home to his wife. And again, he slept at the palace entrance with the king's palace guard. So in the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and gave it to Uriah to deliver. The letter instructed Joab, station Uriah on the front lines where the battle is the fiercest. Can you imagine this? I mean, obviously, as a soldier, he can't open the king's mail. So he's taking the letter that's actually intentionally going to put him in the fierce battle so that he will die, so that David can be off the hook for the sin that he had committed. David, like the writer of most of the Psalms, the man after God's own heart, the one who had slayed Goliath, this David was going down really fast. Would you agree? I mean, this started with him just looking out over his rooftop, and there's this woman. I don't know what the wisdom was of bathing out on the rooftops, but, you know, one way or the other, David made all this happen, and now we're, now we're at murder. I mean, it was adultery, then it was lying, then it was manipulation, now it's murder that David um, is, is agreeing to here. And so that's what happens. Uriah ends up dying in battle, and then you look to chapter 12, verse 1. So the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to tell David this story. There were two poor men in a certain town, or two men in a certain town. One was rich, one was poor. The rich man owned a great many sheep and cattle. The poor man owned nothing but one little lamb that he had bought. He raised that little lamb. He grew it up with his children. It ate from the man's own plate, drank from his cup. He cuddled it in his arms like a baby daughter. One day a guest arrived at the home of the rich man, but instead of killing an animal from his own flock or herd, he took the poor man's lamb and killed it and prepared it for his guest. David was furious. As surely as the Lord lives, he vowed, any man who would do such a thing deserves to die. He must repay four lambs to the poor one, to the poor man, for the one that he stole and for having no pity. Then Nathan said to David, "You are the man I anointed you king of Israel and saved you from the power of Saul, God says. I gave you your master's house and his wives in the kingdom of, of Israel and Judah. And if that had not been enough, I would have given you much, much more. Why then have you despised the word of the Lord and have done this horrible deed? For you have murdered Uriah the Hittite with the sword of the Ammonites and stolen his wife. So David here has the lights flipped on in his big messy room. When Nathan the prophet walks in, it's this big gleaming light bulb and suddenly it's all out there and obvious something is massively wrong in the palace. Now what are David's options? How could he react to this light that's been turned on? How do you think you would react? Or how would you be tempted to react? I think you know, there's a f- bunch of things we could say. Ah, this never happened. I mean, the first one is denial, right? Denial's not a river in Egypt, as they all say. It's sometimes it's alive in your heart. So you might, you might, your first instinct might be to say, wait, wait, Nathan, that is incorrect. You don't have all the facts. There's another explanation. Okay, if that doesn't work, to say, well, you know, I mean it happened, but it wasn't that big of a deal. After all, I'm the king. And back in those days, they they there was the traditions they had multiple wives, and so, you know, David could have excused it that way. Or maybe, maybe David could have gotten really angry from his throne. He could have stood up and said, Nathan, this is none of your business. And he could have had Nathan executed. He didn't do that. David could have said, well, it's her fault. I mean, she came, she chose, she was bathing. David could have even said, ah, no, it's, it's Uriah's fault. Like, I wanted him to go sleep with his wife. He wouldn't do it. So what was I supposed to do? David might have just said, hey, this is all private. I had my reasons. I don't need to share them with you. I'm the king. He might have even said, hey, this is just who I am. Like, you're just going to have to accept me as I am. And so instead of David accepting, he forces everybody else to accept. Those are all natural inclinations we have when we're confronted, right? Thankfully, King David did not take any of those pathways, but instead he did choose the path of confession, of acceptance. So look over in the Bible at Psalm 51. Right in the middle of the book of Psalms, we have a psalm of David, as many of them are. And right in the introduction to this psalm, it says the context. He writes this as a song for the choir director. A psalm of David regarding the time Nathan the prophet came to him after David had committed bath, uh, with adultery with Bathsheba. So this is David's prayerful response to what had happened. Have mercy on me, O God, because of your unfailing love, because of your great compassion, blot out the stain of my sins. Wash me clean from my guilt, purify me from my sin, for I recognize my rebellion. It haunts me day and night. Against you, you alone, have I sinned. I have done what is evil in your sight. Are you hearing any common excuses here from David? Are you hearing him shifting blame at all? No, not at all. He's he's fully accepting responsibility. He's admitting the fact that it wasn't just like, I blew it, but I won't do it again. No, he's recognizing my identity, like I'm on the wrong road. My room is a mess. I'm responsible. Lord, I have sinned against you as I've done this. You will be proved right in what you say. Your judgment against me is just. For I was born a sinner. Yes, from the moment my mother conceived me. But you desire honesty from the womb, teaching me wisdom even there. Purify me from my sins, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. Oh, give me back my joy again. You have broken me. Now let me, re- now let me rejoice. Don't keep looking at my sins. Remove the stain of my guilt. Create in me a clean heart, O God." Renew a loyal spirit within me. Do not banish me from your presence. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and make me willing to obey you. See, David here is pouring out his heart. He's asking for mercy, but he's not asking for mercy based on excuses. Like, Lord, this really wasn't a big deal. Can't we just move past it? Or uh, nobody, nobody else has to know. Can't we just sweep it under the rug? No, David is wide open. He's saying, Lord, I need you Like, I can't fix this on my own. I need you to transform my heart. I need you to purify me. Lord, if I have any hope, it's going to be from your mercy, not from my excuses. David accepted responsibility for the sins that he'd committed. And on that basis now, it's possible to repent. It's possible to go a new direction if you're willing to accept the truth. Okay, so here's a couple truths about acceptance. We're going to walk through really briefly as we wrap up. Because what I want to do is not leave you just with the idea of, hey, this, you know, confess your sins. I want to give you a path forward on what that can look like. And I need it too. We all have this, we need this path forward. So the first truth is that confession is agreeing with what God already knows. So when we play games with God, thinking, you know, maybe we'll trade like I sinned, so I'm going to do something good and maybe God won't worry about my sin. God knows the truth. He knows what's going on in your heart already. Hebrews 4.13 says nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So there's no way to hide anything from God anyway. So so confession is not a matter of making God aware. Like, hey God, by the way, I know you missed this, but I really blew it today. That's not Confession is saying, God, you know the truth. I'm admitting the truth. I agree with you about the truth. I agree with you about my sins. So we're just simply admitting what God already knows. The second acceptance truth is that confession unlocks God's forgiveness and cleansing. First John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, what will happen? He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what God is waiting for, if you say, I, I need transformation, I need to sense God's forgiveness in my life, I need to, I need to like, have that pure heart. David was talking about, I'd love for my behavior to change. What's my first step? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and then to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So I say, Lord, you already know On that basis, Lord, I confess and I ask for your mercy and your forgiveness in my life. And amazingly, God is willing to do that. Uh, Even though you would say it it doesn't even feel right. Like, why would God give us so? Why would God give David mercy after what he did? Why would God give you mercy after what you've done or what I've done? That's what God's grace is all about. Okay, and that relates to the third truth here about acceptance, confession invites God's grace into my story leading to transformation we'll talk about this more in the next couple of weeks but in Titus it talks about how God's grace is available to everyone and that grace is what teaches us how to escape all the evil that's in our hearts and out in the world and instead to live a self-controlled and upright and godly life and so the, the premise that it's possible to change is not necessarily about you mustering up willpower. I mean, you could try, but most people fail when they try to change based on their own willpower, and that's it. Spiritually, you can't succeed that way. Maybe in some earthly category, you could have a better life if you try harder, but for the most part, the reason we haven't changed is because we can't. And so, so we're saying, Lord, I need you to do something in my life that I have not been able to fix on my own. I accept the fact that I can't fix it. That's why I need your grace to teach me, to lead me, to empower me in a new direction. Okay, so I want you to go back to when we started here. Think about that one behavior that you wish you could change. Whether it's just a little annoying habit or whether it's a full-blown destructive addiction. Uh, maybe it's a way that you think. Maybe it's words that you say and you wish you could pull them back, but it's too late. Some, something that you have as a reoccurring behavior and you wish it would change if you're ready to not just look around and admit you have a messy room, but actually accept responsibility, here's how you could start thinking about that. These are the kind of questions you can ask. Hey, you don't have to write all these down, or just, just kind of like let this, let's grab the one that you need in your life right now. What consequences am I facing right now that flow from my behavior? What long-term impacts can I expect if I continue? when did this pattern start in my life? It's amazing, we get so used to making excuses that we forget how long some of these things have gone on. So we say, wait, wait, this has been years that I've been doing this. Lord, I need help, I'm not self-sufficient. I I, I need to accept responsibility for what's been happening. Why did it happen and why is it still happening? Sometimes the answer is as simple as choice. Sometimes other people are involved. Why haven't I seen or dealt with this already? And in all likelihood, it's not because you don't want to, it's because you don't have the power to. You have to accept that as well. What aspect of this do I have direct control over? Or do I have any indirect control? So the difference would be, you know, if you're you're spitting out a curse word and you really wish you could quit but you don't, like, you do have direct control. You don't have to open your mouth. So that's your control. Um, if you're if you're tempted by something that's happening in your environment say well i don't exactly have direct control over the temptation but i have indirect control like i could change my circumstance somehow to to navigate around that pitfall okay Uh, what is left that i'm going to need god's grace and help with like you might just throw up your hands and say i've tried everything i i don't know what else to do god i need you what do i need god or others to forgive me for The reason that last question is there is because sometimes we're so good at wording around what's wrong with us or what our behaviors have been that we lose sight of the fact that we're hurting God and people as we go the wrong direction. And so by asking that ninth question there, what it's forcing us to do is to realize, wait a minute, if I need forgiveness, then that means that I actually sinned. That's what David realized. Lord, I've sinned against you. It's very possible that the behaviors that you've thought of as personal weaknesses, fits of rage or addiction consequences or whatever, that you've been thinking that that's just about you when in reality there are people you've been hurting along the way. And this is all about acceptance. This isn't fun. This is the, <laughs> this is the part of change and growth that's difficult because this, our pride wants to say, I hope he clicks away from that screen really fast. I don't want to look at those things. I don't want to think about it that way. I just, this is just who I am. This is just my weaknesses. But no, when we get honest before God, we get aware of what the consequences have been, and then we decide to start stepping forward, we have to accept responsibility. Um, that is, uh, from that basis, there's hope for change. Psalm 139 Search me, O God. Know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path to everlasting life. So let's pray that prayer together today. Lord, as we contemplate thinking a new way so that we can live a new way, as we contemplate defeating some of the behaviors that have kept us in bondage or in turmoil for maybe years and years. Right right at the beginning here, Lord, we want to admit to you the truth and not try to hide or blame or defend, but simply to accept our own responsibility for our own behavior. And then, Lord, to call out for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for giving us that as a promise in the Bible. We don't have to wait and wonder, will you forgive us? That it, you will forgive us if only we come to you in humility. So, Lord, that's what we do today. Search us, know our inner thoughts. If there's something in one of us that is offensive, sinful, going the wrong direction, Lord, would you make that clear to us so that we can move forward in our lives and not be stuck right there? until the day we die. Lord, you have given us a road forward toward freedom. You have given us a path for forgiveness and restoration and newness of life. All that you ask of us is that we confess, that we agree with you about the things you already know. Lord, we ask you, to do this work in our hearts, to prepare us so that when we do come to the end of ourselves, we're ready for the frontier that lies ahead. We're ready for the mission that you want to call us into. Lord, we look forward to continuing to learn about this, and we pray that you would illuminate the pages of the Bible as we read them here in church and also at home to give us the direction we need for our lives. In Jesus' name, we pray this together. Amen. All right, God bless you. We will see you next week.